In the book of Jude, in verse 12, the Scripture there says, These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. A big question that folks have today is, what are these love feasts? We can go to the pulpit commentary and we find that this fellow, S.D.F. Salmon, says, what is referred to appears not to be ordinary friendly gatherings or occasions for the interchange of affection, but the well-known agape, or love feast of the primitive church, the meals provided in connection with the Lord's Supper at which rich and poor sat down together. To read this quote from a commentary that is typically well-respected would just make us believe that we ought to be able to find these love feasts all over the New Testament. After all, they are well-known. But amazingly enough, despite the fact that this fellow calls these things well-known, this passage in Jude 12, the one about which he is writing, is the only passage in all the Bible that mentions them. How is it then that we can call these love feasts well-known? Well, they become well-known because of the modern desire to have eating as part of worship and as part of serving God. They become well-known when folks read extra-biblical writings of the centuries following the time of the Bible's writing. But they are not well-known because of the Scripture. And so we continue to ask the question, what are love feasts? Some folks take a look at this verse and they believe that this is just a reference to common meals, gatherings of Christians individually. Some view it as the Lord's Supper. Some view it as the idea of the Lord's Supper in the midst of a common meal. Some read Jude verse 12 and they find authority for churches at fellowship halls and social common meals sponsored by, planned, and paid for by the congregation. My question is, can we take a look at the Bible? And can we learn from the Scriptures how we ought to conduct ourselves? Can we have some understanding of what is authorized by this verse? I believe we can. And that is exactly what I'd like for us to look at tonight. What is authorized by Jude verse 12 when it talks about the love feasts that these brethren were having? I'm going to tell you as we begin that as I've studied this over the past several weeks, I have personally traveled down two different paths trying to understand this text. Most believe that this is just literally the idea of feasting. It's literally an idea of eating a meal. I am not so convinced that that's the case. But instead of tonight just saying it's one or the other, what I'd like for us to do is to take some time and go down both paths, consider both concepts and both ideas, and see where it leads us as far as what is authorized regarding the church and its work. I'd like for us to consider, first of all, the concept that perhaps these love feasts are literal meals. If, in fact, when we look in Jude in verse 12, we look at this as a literal meal, what's authorized? The very first difficulty that we're going to have, brethren, is I want you to look very closely at Jude in verse 12. Does Jude in verse 12 tell you what a love feast is? It certainly does not. Does Jude in verse 12 tell you how to conduct these meals, these love feasts? 
Does it tell us anything about what these are and what we should do with them? It doesn't. All this passage is, is a passing comment. You would think, considering some of the debate that happens around this topic today, that Jude in verse 12 was written for the specific intent to command us to have love feasts. And it's not. This verse is here to talk about hypocrites and the problems they cause within the church. And as a passing comment, it mentions something about these hypocrites when they're with the Christians at love feasts, whatever those things may be. There is only one other passage that is most likely talking about the same thing due to the parallels, even though it doesn't say love feast. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, as it talks again about these hypocrites, says that they'll receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. And yet, once again, does this passage tell us anything about these feasts? Does it explain to us how to accomplish them or what we need to do in order to do them? It doesn't. Once again, all we have is a passing comment. So what do we need to do? We need to remember our rules for Bible study. You remember that lesson last week? What are our simple rules for Bible study? We've got to keep every passage in context. We've got to make sure that these passages fit in harmony with everything else we read about the Scripture. I'll tell you what we are not allowed to do. We are not allowed to take these two passing, vague comments and come up with all manner of teaching and doctrine about feasts within the church. We are not allowed to go outside the Bible and find what men, whether ancient or modern, have to say about love feasts and claim that that is God's rule. I don't have a problem with you finding out what others think. But we need to keep in mind that what man thinks is not God's rule. What are we to do? We need to examine the Scripture. Because while there is no other place in the Bible that talks about love feasts, we do have other passages in the Bible that talk about the church and the church eating. And when we examine those passages, we can learn what God's will is for us and what He authorizes within His church. And then from that, we can learn, here's what love feasts must be. Or here's how we can conduct feasts that involve the church or members of the church. As we consider this, the very first thing that we need to keep in mind is the Bible passage in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, Paul said, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is not eating and drinking. I am amazed considering this passage that there are brethren today that try to make a common meal the center piece of worship and of time together for Christians. And yet the overarching principle is that the kingdom of Christ is not about eating and drinking. We are not allowed to take Jude 12 and 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 and rip them out of their biblical context to make in some way the idea of eating and drinking the centerpiece of our worship to God or of our service to God as if it is all important that we as Christians come together to eat and drink because that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is not about those kind of things. 
Secondly, I'd like you to notice in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, when it came to the church and eating, we find a very interesting dichotomy here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, I want you to notice what happened as the church was established. These Christians in Jerusalem, it says in Acts 2.46, were continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. What was happening here? The church was coming together as a whole at the temple. They were there in one accord, worshiping, continuing in the apostles' doctrine. They were praying. They were singing. They were worshiping God. But then what did they do? Separate from that congregational assembly, they were eating from house to house. And so what we find is that common meals were kept separate from the church's work. The Jerusalem church was not here sponsoring common meals. They had not built some fellowship hall for the church to have meals to feed everybody, poor and rich alike. They were not using that to draw folks in so that they would hear the gospel. Christians, because they were Christians, because they were members of the church together, were spending time together. And that's all that was happening eating from house to house. The church was not sponsoring meals. And considering the fact that there were 10,000 or more of these Christians, I doubt they were even announcing when folks were having groups into their home. Could you imagine trying to announce that many groups? Of course not. It wouldn't work. The church wasn't involved in this. These were individuals eating with one another from house to house. But then we do notice an example of the church coming together to eat as a congregation in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we find now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. We recognize that the congregation did come together to eat. They came together to eat the Lord's Supper in keeping with passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The bread which the church came together to break, not a common meal. The Lord's Supper representing their communion with one another and their communion with Christ and His body and His blood. But as we consider this concept of the Lord's Supper, we do have one extremely enlightening passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17, the church in Corinth was having a problem. They were supposed to be taking the Lord's Supper, but they were not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17, the Scripture there says, Now, indeed in these instructions I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe them. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. The overarching problem the Corinthian church was having was division. They had factions. And because of these divisions, it was affecting the way that they partook of the Lord's Supper. In fact, very interestingly, Paul said, when you're coming together, it is not to take the Lord's Supper. What these brethren were doing was not the Lord's Supper. They had changed it into something else. In fact, notice what he says. You're not coming to eat the Lord's Supper, but when you come, each one eats his own supper, taking it before others. You see, here's the problem. They were not coming together to honor our Lord and remember His death. They were coming together to eat their supper. And because of this, because of the self-centered way, they're not honoring God but honoring themselves. There were some that were even taken out and keeping others from being involved in the whole process at all. Paul said, do I praise you in this? I absolutely do not. And then he made three points, one very lengthy and two very short. But he began in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, three points to correct this problem. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Paul's first point was to recognize that when we gather to eat the Lord's Supper, it is about Jesus' death, not about our hunger. As we gather to participate in the bread and in the fruit of the vine, we're supposed to be discerning our head, not our stomach. This is not a meal to fulfill our physical desires. This is a memorial to remind us of what Jesus did. He says, if you drink of it and eat of it in an unworthy manner, you will be judged. Keep in mind what it's all about, Paul says. But then he continued in verse 33. He said, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. To recognize that if this is going to be partaken properly, it's supposed to be eaten in the assembly, not when the first person shows up and finds food sitting there. I recognize that we might have difficulty understanding this. We eat so sumptuously and live so luxuriously that we would find it hard to believe that folks would make actual meals out of unleavened bread and grape juice. But when you consider the time where this was done, the things that were used for the Lord's Supper were things that were used in common meals. And evidently, brethren were getting there and seeing the food, and they decided to start eating. And were changing it from what it was supposed to be. Paul said, this is supposed to be done in the assembly, not when the first person shows up. But then he continued in 1 Corinthians chapter, 13, chapter 11 and verse 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 34, But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Let you come together for judgment, 
and the rest I will set in order when I come. He said, if you're hungry, eat at home. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, if you're just so absolutely starved, you won't be able to wait till the church starts the Lord's Supper. You'll just have to start eating before. Then eat at home. He doesn't say, if you're just so hungry, you won't be able to control yourself. Then eat something at home first before you have the meal with the church. He says, if you're hungry, eat at home. Because that's where you eat if what you're thinking about is hunger. When we gather together for, as the church, we're not eating because of hunger. We're not having a meal. We're having a memorial. That's the point Paul was making. Because if you come there and what you're thinking about is how hungry you are, you'll be judged. If you're coming there and you're trying to fulfill hunger instead of fulfill your responsibility to the Lord, you will be judged. Brethren, I just want you to think about this very clearly. This is not difficult. This is very simple. There's only one passage in all the Bible that ever relates a common meal to the Lord's Supper, that ever connects it in any way, and this is it. And I want you to notice very clearly that Paul condemned it. He said, if you want to eat a meal, you go home. We gather here to eat a memorial. The church's assemblies are, and the church's participation in the Lord's Supper, those are not about our physical hunger. Those are about our spiritual hunger. And so turning the Lord's Supper into an actual meal completely misses the point. But you see, that's one of the problems with our society today. We miss the point a lot of the times because we're not always concerned about God's point. We often think about what we want. And brethren, let's face it, we like to eat, don't we? And we like to get together to eat, don't we? That's fine. But that's not what this is about. This is about serving the Lord and a spiritual hunger. And that's what we've got to keep in mind. And so, brethren, as we conclude our look at what the Bible says about eating and the church, and we go back to 2 Peter 2 and verse 13 and Jude in verse 12, we're going to come up with these two choices. And frankly, I'm not going to tell you which one you have to believe. If you want to believe that it was a reference to the Lord's Supper, a love feast because it demonstrated how much Jesus loved us and we're proclaiming our love for Jesus, that's fine. But what is it then? It's not a common meal. It's the Lord's Supper. And what Peter and Jude are saying is they're gathering together and they're partaking of this memorial, but while they're there, they're defiling it because they're not discerning the head. They're continuing in their sins as hypocrites. But if you don't see the Lord's Supper here, if you rather see it as an idea of Christians eating together, you can't extrapolate this and say it was the church having a meal because what we find in the New Testament is that Christians ate together from house to house, but the church didn't sponsor these meals. And so you'd have love feasts in people's homes as Christians demonstrated their love for one another through hospitality. And that would be fine. But you can't bring that into the worship assembly. You can't bring that into what the church is supposed to be doing. If that's what Peter and Jude are talking about, then he's pointing out that these hypocrites have no problem eating at our tables and accepting our hospitality, but they're selfish and dangerous and they'll cause problems doing that. That's all we can get out of that. If we accept it as a literal meal. So what's authorized? 
You believe it's a literal meal? The same thing that we've always said is authorized. The church gathering together for the Lord's Supper and Christians being hospitable to one another, individually taking care of one another, eating with one another, spending time with one another. And that's it. And we need to beware of hypocrites involved in either one of those things. But you can't bring those things together because when the church at Corinth did, Paul condemned it. But, allow me to challenge you just a little bit. After studying this, I am not so convinced that when Peter mentions feasts and Jude mentions love feasts that he was actually talking about a literal meal. I think it's possible that Peter and Jude were using this as a metaphor, a figure of speech. Just like, I was trying to think of a good example of this, and I'm not a big football fan, but I remember the Refrigerator Perry. Does anybody remember Refrigerator Perry? Okay, was his name Refrigerator? No, that was a metaphor. They were calling him Refrigerator because why? Because he was huge. He looked like a big old fridge. Nobody was saying he was really a fridge. You didn't expect to open him up and find food chilled inside. But speaking as a figure of speech, here's a man who looks like a fridge. We'll call him a fridge. Peter and Jude, I think, are using feast and love feast in that same kind of way. Not because they're actually talking about Christians getting together and eating real food, but I think they might be talking about something else. First of all, let me demonstrate to you that contextually, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. This perfectly fits within the context of what Peter and Jude both do within their books. If you take a look at 2 Peter chapter 2, you'll notice in verse 12 that... Peter uses, this time not a metaphor, but the very similar figure of speech, a simile. He talks about these hypocrites. He says, but these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they don't understand. And then in verse 13, as it talks about them, they're going to receive wages of unrighteousness as those who carouse in the daytime. There's another simile. But then we find more metaphors in verse 17 about these hypocrites. These are wells without water. Clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Peter is using very figurative language, figures of speech throughout this as he's describing these hypocrites. So I'm not just pulling this out of thin air trying to change what Peter is talking about. I'm saying it's a very real possibility that amid these figures of speech, he's using another one. And we take a look at Jude, verse 12. It's even stronger there. In Jude... And verse 12, he says, These are spots in your love feast while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They're clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, nobody from this would say we ought to start conducting astronomy classes. Nobody would say we ought to be having services by the sea. Nobody's going out planting trees and nobody's looking at the clouds here. We all understand those are figures of speech, metaphors, as it's talking about these hypocrites. All I'm saying is, I think it's possible, very possible, that when Peter and Jude refer to these as spots in the love feast, they're using another metaphor, another figure of speech, amid several figures of speech. If we travel down that path, we're going to be reminded of another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, 
the Corinthian church was having a problem with being in fellowship with an immoral man. A man who was committing immorality with evidently his stepmother. And the church wasn't doing anything about it. But as Paul talked to them in verses 6-8 through regarding what they should do, he didn't just mention the congregational fellowship in sin. He talked about the Passover feast and leaven. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and following, he says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For, in, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us, excuse me, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He calls Christ our Passover, calling to mind the sacrifice of the Passover lamb that, that saved the Israelites as the blood was sprinkled on the doorposts and on the lintel of their house. He says Christ is our Passover. And then he relates our continued fellowship with one another and with Christ as that continuing unleavened feast that should be taken without leaven. He says Christ is our Passover. And we need to continue in the feast without leaven, getting rid of the leaven of malice, getting rid of that old leaven of sin that we gave up when we became Christians. We need to remove that leaven so we can eat this feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. But here he talks about a feast, and we all recognize clearly the metaphor here. He's talking about us and our fellowship with one another and the congregation as it gathers together and worships God and continues in its work and fellowship together and its fellowship with Christ. You've got to remove that leaven out. I believe it's very possible that Peter and Jude are using this very same figure of speech. After all, Peter was well aware of Paul's writings and in fact he expected the brethren here to be well aware of them. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter said, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as in also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. He expected these folks to be well aware of Paul's writings. And then when you read through the book of Jude, there's no doubt that it's modeled after the book of Second Peter. So many things are parallel. I think it's very possible that these writers were using this very same figure and expected their audience to understand it. We just have trouble with it because we have trouble with figures of speech. And we don't see them unless they just pound us right in the forehead. If we keep this thought in mind, and I forgot to reveal that so you could read that going along with what I was saying, the Passover feast uses a metaphor for Christ's sacrifice and our continued fellowship with Him and one another through worship together. If we keep that thought in mind as we look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, what do we find? In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, he talks about these receiving their wages. He says about halfway through the verse, they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. The idea of them being spots and blemishes automatically brings up, that, again, that idea of the Passover lamb, that it's supposed to be what? Without spot and without blemish. That feast that is supposed to be undefiled brings that same picture to our mind. And then when he talks about these hypocrites carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, 
He's not speaking literally when He says they carouse in their own deceptions. Instead, what we find a picture of is feasting and carousing used as metaphors to point out that while hypocrites appeared to be worshiping with the saints, they were actually deceiving the saints, lusting, sinning, and enticing others to do the same. Isn't that what He says? They're feasting with you, but really they're carousing in their deceptions, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. They're enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practice and are accursed children. And so it's very possible. He's just talking about here, here we are coming together to feast on our Passover lamb, feasting on God's Word, being in fellowship with Christ. And here are these folks that are coming in here with us, but they're deceiving us. They're carousing, that is, living luxuriously in deception. Because while they're here and they look like they're one of us, they're actually full of sin and rebellion against God. And then if we consider that same thought and we look at Jude in verse 12 again, we find in Jude in verse 12, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Interestingly, the term here in Jude where it says spots is not the same term as used in 2 Peter. A lot of the translations have translated it spots because of the parallels, but actually the word literally means a ledge or a sunken rock. And the point being, just as these sunken rock ledges are dangerous for ships that are traveling, they don't see them, they'll run in them, and it'll rip a big gas through them and cause them to sink. Just like that, these hypocrites are dangerous when they're among you. Why are they dangerous when they're feasting with us? It says because they're serving themselves. Brethren, I'll be honest with you. I have a hard time believing that Jude is going to be making a big point about how dangerous they are and the danger that he describes them is the fact that we're all just eating a meal and they only fill their own plates. I think he's talking about something far deeper than that. The word here when it talks about them serving themselves is the exact same word that Jesus used when He talked to Peter in John 21 and verse 16 and He said to him, Tend my sheep. Peter, your job is to shepherd. Your job is to feed the sheep. Nobody there thought He was talking about a real meal, did they? But you see, these hypocrites, they're the exact opposite of this. Instead of feeding the sheep and shepherding and being good shepherds, they're like the anti-shepherds that we find in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. As Isaiah talks about the shepherds of God's people, and verse 9, he says, All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They can't bark sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, I'll bring wine and we'll fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. These folks who are only intent on serving themselves. Or we might look in Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning at verse 1. God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves! Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? 
You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back that which was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you've ruled them. So they were scattered, and because there was no shepherd, they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains. And on it continues with this picture. You see, now there's a real danger. When you have folks that are only feeding themselves and only serving themselves, what happens to the others? They get scattered. Just like James said in James chapter 3 and verse 16, where self-seeking is, every evil thing is. Boy, that's dangerous. And so, what do we conclude then? If you look at these passages and recognize these as metaphors in the midst of metaphors, then we find we're not dealing with meals at all. There's no way we could come to these passages and talk about churches having meals and coming up with those kind of doctrines. What we would be talking about is the church and its continued fellowship with one another and its fellowship with Christ feasting on our Passover lamb as we gather here worshiping and feeding on His Word. And what do we learn? We learn that we need to beware of hypocrites and rebels in our midst who would hide among us, who would deceive us. And as Jude says in verse 22, on some have compassion, making a distinction. I believe that refers to those who are just struggling with sin that need help overcoming but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. That refers to these rebels and hypocrites. They're not just struggling with sin. They've sold themselves to it and they're deceiving us. Our job is they're in the fire. Our job is to save them from it. But of course, if they will not be saved, we need to remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. We've got to remove the leaven so that we can eat the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, these are our choices. <coughs> I have my opinion. But frankly, what I've decided is I'm not going to tell you which one of those things you ought to believe. Because in the end, no matter which one of them you believe, if we're going to study the Bible honestly, practically, we all come out to the same place, don't we? If you want to believe that it's a literal meal, you're going to have to make a choice. Either it's the Lord's Supper, or it's Christians spending time with one another separate and apart from the church. Otherwise, you're going to have to dispense with all the rules governing how we study the Bible and how to use the Bible properly. Or if you view it as a metaphor... We're not going to come down to this path of anything other than what we see those other passages saying about eating anyway, are we? It comes out practically to the same place. And so, what are the love feasts? Maybe I haven't cleared it up for you. But i tell you what I know it's not. It's not us gathering as the congregation, eating a meal, and then throwing in some unleavened bread and some grape juice. That's not what it is. It's not us building a fellowship hall and having meals. It's not that. Before we conclude, let me tell you, I am very well aware 
that we can go to Christians who wrote in the two centuries following the New Testament's writing, and we can find what they say about love peace, and we can find what they call love peace. We can look at Tertullian's writings as he talks about love peace. And he says, here's how they're conducted, and here's what we do. I know we can find that. But brethren, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we find that even Christians, while the apostles were still there, were getting things messed up regarding feasts, would we really consider it wise to go a hundred years later when there aren't any apostles to correct them and accept what they say about the church's eating and feasts? And secondly, I have to tell you, I still believe 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 which says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work. If I have to go outside the Scripture to define and describe what we're doing, then, brethren, it's not a good work. We've got to stay within the Scripture. That's what we must do. So here's our choices. What's authorized? Brethren, the same thing we've been doing. Making a distinction between individual Christians and their responsibilities for hospitality. Not trying to overshadow that by the church taking over. But allowing individuals to fulfill their role as hospitable brothers and sisters. And allowing the church to fulfill its role as the institution that God has set up to feed people the gospel. We've got to keep that distinction. We've got to continue on recognizing that as a church, we gather together to participate in the Lord's Supper, a memorial, not an actual meal. And that we've got to spend time with one another separate and apart from what we do here. That's where we are. And no matter which approach you take to it, what we find is that Peter and Jude warn us to steer clear of the hypocrites because they're dangerous. They defile what you're doing. Don't allow them to continue on. Either restore them to the proper faith or remove the leaven. That's what we've got to do. Could you pull out your songbooks, please?